Welcome to the IBS IBS podcast. This is Gaia Lampetti, and today we are joined by Michele Schueli, founder and managing partner of Armin Capital, an investment firm focusing on fintech. Hi, Gaia. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. Michele's experience spans across 10 countries, over five continents. So, Michele, maybe we can start by hearing a bit more about your personal journey and what led you to found Armin Capital. Sure. So I started my journey in, in technology very early. Since I was a little kid, I was uh, very fond of computers. I think I, I coded my first website in HTML and, and CSS when I was 12. So for some reason or, or another, uh, I didn't end up pursuing computer science um, you know, courses at university. I, I got into business and uh, I started my career in traditional finance, in, in wealth management. But in the back of my head, I always had this uh, you know, passion for technology. And um, so where really the two things merged for me was, was venture capital. So taking my, my experience in, in finance and sort of merging it with, with my passion in, in technology. And so uh, in uh, 2016, I joined a fund in Europe that was focusing on, on industrial IoT technologies. And, and that was kind of uh, my realization moment that, that that's what I really wanted to do for the rest of my life, uh, really. And um, it, it was not until 2018, uh, until I founded Armin Capital, uh, which is really an evolution of, you know, my, my personal investments in, in technology, which I, which I then uh, sort of institutionalized and, and put together in, in a fund. That's impressive. Wow. So you work in the venture capital space, and this is a sector where we have seen massive changes happening over the course of the past few years. And I say especially in, in the last couple of years. But I would like maybe to go a little bit back in time and start from the beginning, if you could maybe draw in a historical view of how VC has traditionally worked, because there's a very interesting aspect. The industry is probably so focused on spotlighting innovation and emerging companies that it has rarely innovated itself up to now. Am I correct? Absolutely. Yeah, there is a bit of a dichotomy here. And if you consider venture capital as, as the money of innovation, uh, on, on the other hand, the industry rarely saw any innovation in itself, right? And so if we go back to the very early days of, of venture, venture capital, we go back to the 70s uh, with the, one of the first funds by, by Sequoia. And, and imagine back then the environment was very different. There were not that many startups. The technology was, was in some shape or form nascent, right? There was uh, no internet back then. And uh, also there was no widespread knowledge on, on how to start a company, no, you know, why combinator startup school. And so venture funds were, were very active into helping entrepreneurs to build a company. And there were very few investors willing to take on the risk to invest in this very risky asset class. And so VCs would essentially sell themselves as smart money, people that would help, you know, an entrepreneur bring a new technology to market. So they would be very actively involved in the company. And in terms of uh, structure, all VC partnerships were structured as uh, GPLP structures, right? So where you had a, a general partner uh, that was managing the fund. And then a set of uh, different LPs, which, which are not many back then, because there were not that many investors willing to, to take on the risk of financing these new technologies, right? So 
there were usually big institutions such as endowment funds or foundations or pension funds that were allocating a very small percentage of, of their portfolio to venture capital. The funds kind of had the same sort of structure, so partnerships with a very clear fund cycle, so usually 10 years. That was the usual timeline for a fund. Firms really didn't differentiate themselves. They, they just focused on you know different funding stages, sectors, or, or geographies. But ultimately, I think that you know all venture firms kind of look the same. And, and don't get me wrong here. I mean, it's a very competitive, and it was a very competitive industry, and it still is today. But there was no really competition from, from the outside. The, the competition was among the players within the industry. For the next, I would say, 40, 50 years, not much changed in the sense that the industry was running on, on what I call a set of dogmas, right? A set of norms and rules that everyone accepted as, as true. And then they were not really questioned up until a couple of, couple of years ago. A couple of those examples of dogmas, for, as I mentioned, the, the fund life cycle, right? I need to deploy all capital within the first three years of my fund. I need to be helpful to the founders. So I'm going to be actively involved and, and try to help the company. Another dogma that was true until the onset of the pandemic was that you know VCs usually were not really prone to investing outside of their geographical area, right? So they would kind of force the founders to move wherever they, they were, which most of the time that meant moving to, to the Bay Area or, or Silicon Valley. And so for new managers, there were quite high barriers of, of entry in the sense that it was very difficult to start a new fund. There were not that many people willing to invest in, in the fund. In order to run a venture partnership, you needed at least, I would say, 50 million in, in assets under management before it would make sense you know, to, to justify all the expenses that you needed to, to run such a fund, right? A founder would have to essentially take a flight to, to the Bay Area, go to Sandville Road, pitch 100 VCs, get 99 no's, and maybe one or two yeses, and then give away board seats, control, and uh, start building a company and, and hope for the best, right? Everyone accepted this uh, kind of procedure because there was really nowhere else to, to go. Absolutely. And with this context in place, it's very clear how now the industry is completely being redefined by new opportunities, new ways for early companies to raise capital, for them to expand. So I would like maybe to hear from you, what are some of the macro trends that are driving this change in the VC industry? And what are some of the new opportunities that are opening for startups and founders all around the globe? Absolutely. So I, I think that the stage was, was kind of set by the pandemic, which in some way, going back to the dogmas, it made it easier to, to let go of, of such dogmas and norms because it was not physically possible to follow them. Like last year, during lockdowns, it was not possible to fly to, to Silicon Valley to pitch a VC. Um, and, and, you know, in the same manner, uh, also for, for GPs that they were raising capital for their own fund, also they had to fly around and meet the LPs, whereas, you know, all of a the sudden they realized that it was possible to do all of this through, through Zoom, right? So we saw, I think, a phenomenon that, that, that people call the Zoomification of, of fundraising, uh, which applied both to GPs and founders. But maybe taking a bit of a, a step back, uh, even from a macro perspective, of course, I think that the biggest player here are low interest rates. Investors were kind of pushed into riskier 
uh, but higher return markets such as venture capital, which in turn led to an abundance of capital in, in the market and capital kind of became a commodity. Actually, there was an interesting article by The Economist that said that only three of the 10 biggest venture investors uh, this year by, by assets under management have been traditional venture firms. So that's kind of the, the, the macro environment. There are quite a few interesting developments in, in the past uh, year or two, really, that, that are sort of uh, helping to redefine the, the venture industry. So probably worth mentioning are changes in regulation. And, and with changes in regulation, there are various regulations that came into effect uh, in the last couple of years that are relevant. Uh, first of all, in terms of liquidity for, for companies, right? Like back in the day, there were only really two ways that a company could, could exit, right? Uh, it was either through uh, an initial public offering or an acquisition. And IPOs were traditionally quite expensive and, and time-consuming, whereas uh, I think last year or, or the year before, we had this uh, new mechanism for, for companies to, to go public, which is direct listings, which make it a lot easier and, and cost-effective for companies to go public. At the same time, we also had the emergence of OSPACs, which are which are something and, and relatively new new instrument. Secondly, I think uh, another uh, change uh, worth mentioning is the SEC loosening the accreditation requirements uh, for investors. Um, so, you know, startups are very risky investments. So of course, agencies around the world are trying to protect small investors from losing all their money. Uh, whereas uh, um, in the past couple of years, the SEC has actively been sort of uh, loosening, let's say, the, the rules for individuals, common individuals to, to invest in, in startups. As third, and this is something that I'm very passionate and interested in, is uh, the new regulatory framework for, for companies to raise capital online, right, through, through digital investment platforms, uh, also commonly known as, as equity crowdfunding, right? And um, this year, for example, the SEC increased the maximum amount, the maximum cap that a company could, could raise online from $1 million to, to $5 million, right? And they also allowed to pool all the investors in, in one SPV because before it, it was not possible. So with this in mind, I think, um, you know, we, we mentioned the, the size of outcomes that, that sort of showed investors all around the world that, you know, it was possible to, to generate returns uh, with technology. And um, another, I think, really interesting aspect here and, and factor that helped sort of change the industry was technology in, in itself. And technology is making it easier for everyone to sort of participate in, in the venture market. Um, so for example, there are new solutions that allow you know investors to spin out SPVs really quickly. Back in the day, it was, it was very difficult to do so. Nowadays, you know, you just go on a website and in two clicks, you have a vehicle with, with a bank account. Um, so it's a lot easier also to collect checks. If, if you're doing a party round, you can easily collect checks from, from many different investors. And also to, to run funds for, for managers, you don't really need to have 50 million anymore like back in the day, but you can head to a platform such as AngelList and um, you don't even need to raise the whole fund at the beginning. You can just uh, have what is now called a rolling fund with quarterly subscriptions, and you can essentially start investing with, with the first check, uh, pretty much, right? And AngelList also manages all the back office, so you don't have to worry about investment structures and um, managing all the back end. AngelList does that for you. That makes it so much easier, right, for, for, for people to invest in companies. And 
And, you know, not only that, but AngelList also allows, you know, accredited investors to go on the platform and uh, receive deal flow from virtually all over the, the world and participate in, you know, investments uh, starting from, from $1,000. So this was really the first time that, that this happened where we, we kind of saw a democratization of, of, of venture investments, right? Um, and um, the last thing I wanted to mention is um, new financial products. There are kind of a, a product, let's say, of, of new technology and new regulations. So, for example, there are a couple of companies now issuing what they're calling non-dilutive revenue share agreements. You know, as an example, if, if you're a growth company, uh, you can choose to either do an equity round or raise raise capital through one of these non-dilutive instruments that you repay as as you get uh, revenues uh, come in. So you know we went from uh, back in the day uh, where VC firms did not really have uh, any competitors on, or rather were just competing among themselves to the formation of you know entirely new players, entirely new investors and structures that you know did not really exist. And did not really concern VCs uh, before, right? So um, VCs now face pressure from from retail investors, from non-traditional tech investors, from new mechanisms to to invest, and, and new players with with innovative strategies that are that are entirely new. That's so interesting, Miguel. And it really feels like this whole new disruption we're witnessing is one of the silver linings of the pandemic because the impression I get is that is really making things easier and more accessible. And the whole process of raising capital, of going public, of investing is way more democratic. As you were saying now, the epicenter is not Silicon Valley anymore, but it has become the internet basically. And maybe do you have a few examples or or case studies uh, where you've seen those dynamics in action and maybe some of the most famous and popular VC firms embracing these new digital models? Yeah, sure. So we we mentioned the Sequoia earlier. So it's it's probably worth mentioning that, you know, Sequoia in itself recently was kind of like this rigid um, fund life cycle that, you know, we, we set up uh, in the 70s and that made sense back then doesn't really make sense anymore today. The thinking behind the change, which now is is going into effect, was that this rigid fund uh, life cycle of 10 years prompted them to to sell their shares too early. And they kind of missed a lot of the upside that these companies were were having in the public markets. So they're now forming a a single open-ended vehicle that will hold all the European and, and US investments with annual subscriptions from LPs. So it will be kind of a liquid, let's say, uh, venture uh, fund that you know was was not very common um, before. The other very interesting player here, and, and I think this is a very good example of uh, non-traditional tech investor uh, moving into the venture investment business. And um, this is Tiger, of course. Going back to the dogmas that, that we discussed before, what makes it very interesting to me is that Tiger pretty much identified you know several of these really outdated dogmas in, in venture and especially in growth and then built a strategy that saw them do exactly the opposite that everyone else was doing so for example if we take the norm that you know VCs have to be helpful especially at the growth stage tiger was like 
we don't really think that we can be helpful at that stage. So, you know, we're not going to take a board seat and uh, we're not really going to take an active role in the company, but the company needs help. Of course, we, we, will, we will do so. And we will, by the way, you know, make available our squad of uh, McKinsey consultants um, that, you know, the founders can use and they're at their disposal, essentially. Another norm that, that they sort of went against was uh, predefined investment schedules, right? So when everyone is still investing on a three years timeline, Tiger essentially said technology is good and we are going to deploy as much capital as we can in the shortest amount of time possible, as long as we can achieve 18% IRR. So Tiger is deploying a very aggressive strategy. They're very quick. They're even rumored to, to give a term sheet within 24 hours. And what they're really doing is kind of providing founders with, with a product that is better, faster, and, and cheaper, right? So it, it's better because founders don't really have to give away control. The Tiger does not really usually take, take a board seat. It's cheaper because they're known to invest in, in companies at a premium, right? So for example, if you have Sequoia giving a term sheet, 100 million valuation, Tiger, in order to win the deal, they will go in and say, hey, uh, you know what, we'll give you a term sheet at 125 million valuation, right? So they're, they're paying a premium, which is, is essentially cheaper for, for founders because um, it means less dilution. Uh, for them, right? And and faster because they can do so within 24 hours. So whereas before the founders would pitch VCs and, and wait, you know, for, for weeks to for, for the due diligence process to, to be over, Tiger is uh, doing all of this within 24 hours. Well, when it comes to Armin instead, what's the role and strategy of the fund you manage at the moment in this landscape? Because if I remember correctly, you guys are also leveraging new digital investment platforms. Sure. On the one hand, especially for early stage deals, we still kind of follow a traditional approach where you know we will make an investment in, in a company where both ourselves and, and the founders feel that our involvement would be beneficial. But then on the other hand, we're riding the, the wave of these changes in, in the venture capital market. And so we leverage investment platforms such as AngelList, also invest through secondaries and, and even SPVs. And uh, so the, the strategy here is that VCs is, is so competitive nowadays. There are so many funds and so it's kind of hard for smaller or newer funds to go and compete with Tiger or Sequoia or Andreessen. And so the way that we, that we do it is through indirect investments. So we have a set of teams that, that we follow and, and a list of companies that you know, we would like to take a position in. And within those, we take a proactive approach in, in making our investments, meaning that you know, we will go and essentially scout SPBs and secondaries in those companies and take a position in that way, which sometimes might mean sacrificing a little bit of even carry for partners. But, you know, venture capital is, is a very long game and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're getting started. So we don't really mind doing that. All of this allows us to be much more lean and opportunistic. We can be very quick in, in making an investment and also, you know, we can do this on a global scale. We're very interested in emerging markets. And so that's where a lot of our, our investments have, have been completed. Yeah, we don't really need to maintain ownership targets, for example. Our only sort of requirement for an investment is that it's in fintech because 
yeah, we come from a traditional finance background. We understand finance. Uh, we understand the inefficiencies and, and the gaps in the market. So, you know, we're, we're confident making investments in, in fintech uh, rather than a segment or, or a sector that we don't really have experience in. Absolutely. And I guess this is not a limitation at all. I mean, the fintech space right now, it's so buzzy and, and so evolving that I think it keeps you busy, I imagine. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, thank you, Michele. Maybe before I let you go, I would like to hear a bit of an outlook for the future. So we discussed the major trends, how so many, even the traditional VCs are adopting new strategies, how Armin is among the, the new generation of VCs, basically digital native. So what can we expect for the future? And particularly, how will traditional VCs who have not shifted yet to the new approach, basically navigate all of this in the coming years? Right. So I think that there's going to have to be a change in the way that these firms operate. Otherwise, if uh, traditional sort of VCs continue to stick to, to the old dogmas and, and norms and rules, they will struggle in the future. And so, you know, I've been hearing even even in recent rounds that traditional firms are, are not really able to keep up with the new entrants and, and they're losing allocations to these new firms that can be very aggressive and, and quick because, you know, they have investment committees and, you know, a set of... Uh, uh, rules that, that they need to follow uh, within the firm that is not possible for, for them to follow because, you know, there is somebody that they will act a lot quicker than, than them, right? So this is something definitely that, that they will have to change. And um, I think it, more in general, this non-strategic approach that, that we discussed earlier worked well before when there was not so much competition from, from the outside, but for sure competition is, is here to stay. And, um, you know, this will mean that a lot of firms will have to rethink the, the way they, they operate and, and reinvent themselves. You know, as a, as a capitalist, I think that competition in, in any market is, is good. We, we will see that competition uh, in any industry leads to a more, more efficient market. Uh, more efficient market will probably mean that also the returns uh, will, will go down a little bit as the market becomes uh, more efficient. But nevertheless, I, I think that this will continue to be a very rewarding asset class. One last thing, tapping into your knowledge of the market, what would be the number one piece of advice you would give to a new investor, maybe a young investor who's just now approaching the space? So I would say that, you know, even though you can take positions in companies uh, through indirect investments or through platforms such as AngelList, VC is still a network game, meaning that the best investment decisions are still made with asymmetric information advantages from the rest of the market. So the closest that you are to, to a company or to the founders, the, the better informed you are with what's really going on uh, with the company. And so just to be mindful that everything that, that you might read online might not necessarily be the true state of things. And especially with uh, secondary transactions or even early stage investments, companies look 
great if you read the deck or if somebody's pitching to you, but there is much more in, in the back that is going on that you know an investor might not be aware of. Well, great. Thank you so much, Michele Hueli, founder and managing partner of Armin Capital. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Gaia.